I'd invite you to remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. We'll be looking at a sermon passage from Philemon today, so right in between Titus and Hebrews, and it is printed there for you in your bulletin. And let us give our careful attention, for this is the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of the love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of the faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, two of my favorite pastimes would have to be baseball and watching movies. And so then it was no surprise that the 2011 film Moneyball really got my heart. It was both of these things met together. And it's this amazing story about the MLB franchise of the Oakland Athletics kind of following their franchise from within. And really what the whole movie about, the title, Moneyball, is that they are trying to compete, they're trying to win a championship, but they have exponentially less salary cap than other teams in the league. For example, one of their rival teams, the New York Yankees, has over $100 million more to spend on players to sign them to help their roster. And so the whole film is about them trying to construct a roster within their means, trying to compete with these big league teams despite not having the same salary cap. And in the middle of the film, there's a great scene that I love, that there is a formerly a New York Yankees player, David Justice, that has come and now played for the rival Yankees, and now he's on the Oakland Athletics team. But despite changing teams, he hasn't really bought into his role as a player. He hasn't really embraced his identity of a new team as a new Oakland A's player. And so there's this conversation that him and the manager have, and he basically realizes after that that he's no longer a New York Yankee, that he's now an Oakland A. He starts to embrace his role in the team as a veteran. He starts to take younger players under his wing. He starts to be a meaningful player in this locker room and the franchise. He changed his behavior because he embraced his new identity. But it wasn't until he embraced his new identity that he saw he had obligations to his teammates, to this franchise. So often it is the case that our identity, until we understand where our identity lies, it doesn't shape our obligations first. In a very different way, not related to baseball, Philemon is a letter all about how the, our identity in Christ, our identity in the gospel, shapes our relationships. It shapes our obligations towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want to take a look at just the first seven verses of this beautiful but short epistle. And we're going to look at first the relationships that Paul sets out with other believers in God. But then we're going to show the response, the obligations that that relationship evokes. So first looking at the relationship. You know that Philemon is one of the later letters that Paul wrote, and this is commonly referred to as one of his prison epistles, as self-explanatory. It's written while Paul is in jail. And we see, we'll see in a second as we get into the intro that Paul's writing pri primarily to Philemon. 
Philemon is the primary recipient of this letter. And really, the first seven verses is priming the pump for the whole structure of the letter. We see later that Philemon has formerly had a slave by the name of Onesimus that has run away, and in God's providence has embraced the gospel through the ministry of the apostle Paul. And so we see that Paul is working up to ask Philemon to receive, he's going to send Onesimus back to him, and Paul's pleading with him to receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ that has changed his identity, his relationship. So let's look, that's kind of the broad structure of the book, but we want to look at the introduction. I think if we are reading through Paul frequently, we're reading through the letters, we've read many of these many times, and so it can become kind of almost subconscious to read through the introductions rather quickly. We know what they say, they're roughly structured the rest of the way. But I want us to walk through this slowly and really grasp this. It's common in Paul that what he's going to do in the rest of the letter is set out in the introduction. And so if we're to understand this letter as a whole, what Paul's getting at, we need to grasp the significance, the richness that's included here for us in the intro. We see that Paul first refers to himself as a prisoner, but not of Nero, not of the Roman Empire, but primarily for Christ Jesus. This is the first element of relationship that we see, and there's a few implications from this. First, Paul is recognizing God's sovereignty here in this. It is not the occasion of men that he has been imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel, but in God's sovereign providence, this has been God's plan, that Paul in his faithful proclamation of the spreading of this message as an apostle, he would be imprisoned. So he recognizes that this is not a mere incident, but this has been God's will. This is what God has called him to do as an apostle, to preach the gospel, and in this season, to be in prison. But fundamentally and more powerful, he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus, not in the sense that Christ is in control, not only in the sense that Christ is in control of all things, but that his ultimate allegiance is to Christ. It's not merely that he's just a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but it's chiefly that he's a prisoner of Christ. He suffers for Christ's sake, not merely because he broke the law in the Romans' minds, but he belongs to Christ, body and soul, his faithful Savior. He's a prisoner for his Savior. We also see that Paul's close companion, Timothy, is included in this letter as well. This would have been two very well-known people that are writing this letter to this church. We see chiefly that it's addressed to Philemon. And again, we see another element of relationship here. We see that Philemon is referred to as a beloved fellow worker. We see that he's mentioned, Philemon's mentioned in other books. There's always, commentators will always draw a close parallel between Colossians and Philemon, as many of similar people are mentioned in both letters. But we don't have a ton of context outside of this book for who Philemon is. But these intro verses give us a little bit of a taste that he's a beloved fellow worker. We don't know for sure that Philemon is a minister. He may, he may not be. It's not definitive on those things, but two things are clear, that he's beloved by Paul. This is a personal relationship that Paul deeply appreciates. He calls this man a beloved fellow worker. And even if he's not a minister, the fact that this whole letter is addressed to him shows that he is a significant person in the church. He is someone who has been laboring alongside Paul for the work of this church. 
And yet we see something almost comedic in verse 2, and I'll get to what I mean by that. But we see that the letter is not only addressed to Philemon, but to several other people as well. We see that it is addressed to Aphia. We don't know exactly who this is, but again, this is probably someone of prominence in the church. She's significant enough that she's addressed in the introduction to this letter. And also we see that Archippus is addressed as well. And we see here that he's a fellow soldier. This is a powerful imagery that he is someone who has been in battle with Paul. He is someone who is walking through the trenches with him. He's been with Paul in the hard times of his ministry. And so Paul dedicates this letter to three particular individuals. But then the comedic aspect is look at the end of verse 2. It's to the church that is in your house. Now why is that funny? If you've read through the letter of Philemon before, you know that, as we mentioned, that Paul is writing this as a plea to accept Onesimus back. It's chiefly addressed to Philemon, but back in the New Testament, this letter would have been read to the whole church. The whole church would have understood this letter. We see that this is a personal letter that's written Philemon, that Paul's asking him a very specific request and favor that he receives his runaway slave back, and yet this letter is read to the whole church church. In other words, everyone would have known whether Philemon obeyed what Paul had said or not. But beyond, beyond just mere comedy, I think this brings up an important application for us today, even 2,000 years later. This letter is largely written personally about a matter between Philemon and Onesimus, and yet it is read to the whole church. This shows us, in a particular way, that the conduct, the relationship between two Christians is not something that exists in isolation or something in abstract, but that's the business of the whole church. We can think of the metaphor of a body that's used as the church. There are many, many members that are part of this one body. And if there is tension in our bodies between our hands and our foot or other body parts, we would take notice of that. We would want to take care that there was not dysfunction within the body. And so we see that Paul here is really priming the pump for his argument of what he's going to ask of Philemon, but he's also going to draw in the accountability of the whole church as well. We see in the first two verses that it's primarily focused on relationships between individuals, Paul and the church and the other recipients. But perhaps most importantly, we see the relationship between human beings and God that is laid out for us in verse 3. Verse 3 is a classic Pauline greeting that he gives to his people. And yet, as we read Paul, as we read the introductions, we should never rush past these. We should never rush to read these quickly and forget how rich these are, and how manifest God's goodness is to us in these greetings. First and foremost, Paul greets them in grace. Think about the idea of grace, what it means to be greeted in the grace of God. We can think of grace in this context of God's unmerited favor. In other words, that as we look into ourselves and we think about our relationship with God, there's no one here today that could say that they did something that was worthy to merit God's goodness to them. And perhaps as we think about our hearts, even from this last week, we know that the exact opposite is true. We are people who are quick to forget God and his promises. We are quick to turn against him when we don't get our way. We, are, we were actively enemies against God. 
We are those every week who sin against our God and our neighbor and what we do and as what we confess as we've left undone, but also in our words and our deeds. No one here today is able to say that I merited God's favor. I deserved God's favor to me. Even the best of us fall radically short of what God has called us to do. Paul greets them in the grace of God because the reality of the gospel of Christ Jesus is that we did not deserve God's favor, God's goodness to us, and yet out of the abundance of his grace and his love, he sent forth his son to bear our guilt, to take, our, to take the wrath for our sins at the cross so that we might be reconciled to God, that we might receive his favor to us in Christ Jesus, not because of anything that we did, but because of the righteousness of Christ alone. But that's not all that Paul greets them. We can think of grace of the unmerited favor that they have been shown in Christ that they're greeted in, but also that they are greeted with peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the idea of peace is perhaps probably best illustrated as we think about the opposite of peace. Often, day, often many times today in the headlines, war is very much on our minds. We can think of war as an opposite of peace. Think about what's going on in Gaza and Israel. There's division, there's hostility, there's hatred. All these things are the opposites of peace. But not just in war, but we can think in of our own lives as well. Husbands and wives, think of seasons where there has not been peace with your spouse. This is rhetorical, so don't answer this. But are those seasons are those seasons of joy when there's not peace with your spouse? What kind of things are evoked in you when you think of seasons where there's been discord between you and your spouse? Kids, what about with your siblings? When you're in a fight with your sibling because they've done whatever, do you think back on those memories with fondness? Maybe if you're a youngest child like me, you do, because you realize you could say that your older siblings did whatever they wanted, and you got away with it. But we can, we can think about with your friends as well, kids. You can think about when there's tension with your friends, that you're not on the same page with them. We don't look on those times with joy. We don't reflect on those seasons and say, everything is flourishing and going well. But it is the opposite of what Paul says in our relationship with God. He greets them and says that we have peace with our Heavenly Father. Beloved, this is the most important relationship we could ever have between God and man. And Paul here is greeting those in Christ saying they have peace with their Heavenly Father. They've been reconciled to him. They're no longer children of wrath, but children of the living God. There are those who have been reconciled and they have been adopted by his Holy Spirit. And we see the chief sign that we have peace, that we have right standing with God through Christ and the fact that Paul is able to refer to, to God, both for himself and for this church, that God is our Father. It is our privilege as Christians to know that we have been given a peace, that we have right standing with God that we're able to come to him in prayer, to come before the throne of grace, knowing that we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need, and able to call on the God who created all the heavens and the earth as our Father. That is our privilege as God's people as we reflect on what's been done for us in Christ 
that we have God's favor to us in grace in Christ, but also that we have peace and assurance and right standing with God through Christ Jesus our Lord as well. These are the relationships that Paul has drawn out, some of the beauty of these things, but such an amazing reality of being showing grace and peace in our God calls for a response as well, which is our second point. Paul then moves in to pass the greeting to particularly appealing back in largely what is a personal remembrance of Philemon. We see that he starts off saying, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Verse 3 and 4, intimately connected, we see this reality that we just talked about, that God is our Father, and that is reflected in the way that Paul calls upon him in prayer. He says, I think, my God, this is personal. This is not an abstract God who has winded the clock of the universe and stepped away, but a God who hears his people when they call to him in prayer. We see this reflected all over the pages of the Psalms, that there's a great personalness with the psalmist and God's people through history have called on God's name. He is our God, and we were able to call to him in prayer in a personal way. He's my God. You see, particularly then to get into the substance of what Paul's prayer is, he's, rem- he's remembering Philemon, who he was. This is not kind of a passive memory that he was just kind of sitting in prison and daydreaming, and Philemon's memory came back, but this is an active remembrance. He's thinking of Philemon. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, remembering to pray for people in the church, opening the directory, looking through the pictures, knowing that people in this church have prayer requests, and let Paul's example here be an exhortation to us to pray for God's people, to remember them, to think about them throughout the day, and to lift them up in prayer. See that Paul is in prison here. Doug Moo, who's an excellent New Testament scholar, drew out the point that the kind of the simple point, he didn't have anything else to do. He was stuck in change. He's stuck in prison. He's not going anywhere. He's not going on a tour proclaiming the gospel. But he's there in prison, and yet he's not wasting his time. He's using all the time he has to pray actively for God's people, and particularly giving thanks to God for Philemon. Verse 5 then gives us the grounds of why he gives thanks for his brother Philemon. There are kind of two things that we see here. He thanks him first because of the love that he has towards all the saints, and also the faith that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at verse 5 in our English translation, it can perhaps be a little confusing exactly what is Paul getting at. He mentions faith and love very closely together, And yet the way the sentence is structured often in our English translations is that we would would think to see that Paul is hearing that he's had both love and faith, not only for God, but also for all the saints. And this might raise some eyebrows as we think about this. What does it mean to have faith in all the saints? Do we often put our faith in other people or in God? I think it's best probably to think about this as the faith referring to Christ and the love referring to all the saints, and yet despite the distinction that we'll make, we'll see that there's an intimate connection between faith in God and love for our neighbors. Here, faith refers to the idea that he has embraced the promises of the gospel as they are offered to us in Christ. He has understood the forgiveness of sins through the cross and the work of Christ Jesus, and understanding that he has been forgiven much He lives a life 
that's quick to forgive to others, to his neighbors. The understanding and appreciating the love that he has been showing in Christ manifests itself and showing its love to his neighbors as well. We can think of 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. The love that Philemon has for his neighbors is an organic fruit of the love that God has shown to him in Christ. We see that these two things are inseparable, that they go together. That love of neighbor is a consequence of understanding our love for God. It is not enough that we understand the love for God and we treat our neighbors terribly, but God has called us to love our neighbors. We are to live a life that reflects that it has been loved and forgiven much. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, for where works and love do not break forth, their faith is not right. The gospel does not yet take hold, and Christ is not rightly known. See that there's an intimate connection between these two things, that as we understand the depths and the riches of God's love to us in Christ, that that organically stems into looking to our neighbors in love and wanting to serve them, knowing that Christ gave his life for us makes us want to be people of service to others. Finally, we see another, another key element of why Paul gives thanks for him, for Philemon. He thanks him that he has love for all the saints. See that Philemon's love is impartial to this church. It's not merely that Philemon likes those who give him attention or those who give him status or influence in this church, but this is someone who loves the whole church impartially. He's not distinguishing. He's loving all the saints. This has been his practice. We see that Paul is appealing to this in part that he's loved all the saints as he's going to appeal that to his broader argument to include Onesimus. You have loved all the Christians in your church, and I'm going to ask you later to love your brother Onesimus as well. Verse 5 gives us, we know that Paul is praying and that why he's giving thanks for God, but then verse 6 gets us into the actual content of what Paul's prayer is for his brother in Christ. Verse 6 is a little tricky. Many recognize that this is the most difficult verse in the epistle, and it can be a little confusing how all these things work together as we read it in this verse. And so we're just going to want to take a few moments to kind of walk through it together to see what Paul is praying for for Philemon. First, he prays that the sharing of his faith may become effective. This idea of sharing is that common Greek word that some of us know as koinonia. It might be translated as, as fellowship or participation. It can be translated in a variety of ways. But really, in this context, the simplicity of it is that Paul is praying that the sharing of his faith may lead him to be effective. In other words, he's recognizing that along in this church and with other Christians, that his faith is going to bring him in contact with other Christians. The Christian life is not an island. It's not lived alone. We don't live it in isolation apart from the body of Christ. And so Paul is praying that he, as you are in contact with other Christians who share your common faith in Christ, that you will become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. This idea of becoming effective and understanding the full knowledge, this is very practical and experiential. It's kind of that idea that we just saw that he's necessarily going to be in contact with other Christians by virtue of his faith. And so Paul's prayer is that experientially he will have a full knowledge and become effective 
of every good work that is in us for the sake of Christ. It's really this idea that he's in community with other Christians who share his faith and that Paul's praying that he would be effective in looking to his neighbor and love and service of what good works are available for him in the church, what ways he can serve his neighbor. I think chiefly that he's priming the idea for what he's going to ask him to do for Onesimus, but he's asking him even to do that now in the church of the people who are in his midst. But we see that this is not merely for Philemon's righteousness, for the sake that he could pat himself on the back, that he would do these good works to his neighbor. But ultimately, look at the end of verse 6. It's for the sake of Christ. It's not for Philemon or even Onesimus that Paul prays that these things would become true. But it is because that as Christians, that as we look in faith to God, And as we look to our neighbors for the good works that he has asked us to do, it is not for our salvation that we might add something, but we do these things because it brings glory to Christ. It is for Christ's sake that we do these things, that we would love his saints of those who we are called to worship with. Finally, Paul ends this kind of this idea of remembering Philemon with a personal remembrance of what his ministry has meant to the church. He personally recounts that I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. We see that there has been a great encouragement that Philemon has been to this church, that his ministry has been one of building up, one of life giving to the saints who were in this church. And Paul has much joy because of that, and then he further elaborates on what type of encouragement, how this encouragement has manifested itself. He says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This idea of heart is in Greek quite literally the guts of somebody. We can think about the the kind of the deep intestines of a person, and if you can bear with the disgusting thought of that, there is a payoff. That the, the guts of a person in Greek, it's the, the deepest, most emotional part of a person, kind of fundamentally of a person. It goes deeper than just the surface. And what Paul is getting at here is he's really showing that Philemon's ministry, his presence in this church, has not been one of superficial shallowness, but he has really been one who has refreshed the saints in a deep emotional way that he is one who has been a balm to their hearts as they walk through the hardness of a sin-cursed world. It's not just that he's been nice to have around, that he shows up occasionally for the Bible studies, but Philemon is one who is actively involved, loving and serving his neighbors in this church, sitting with them in their grief and refreshing the deepest, most emotional part of themselves. As we've mentioned so many times throughout this letter already, the first seven verses are really kind of preparing what he's going to ask Philemon to do in regards to Onesimus, to receive him back. Not, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Philemon is not the first Pauline letter that we probably think of. When we think of the letters written by Paul, we perhaps think of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians as the ones that jump out. And yet in recent months and in this last year, Philemon has been a book that I've returned to over and over again amongst Paul's letters. And I've realized that this is a beautiful letter that reflects the reality 
of a community shaped by the gospel, what it looks like to have a church that recognizes chiefly their identity in Christ and how that lays the foundation for how they look to their neighbors, how they treat and love the saints that God has called them, God has called them to. And it has, this letter has drawn me further into my mind to think about the true beauty of Christian fellowship that exists, even as manifested in this church and around the world. The church is not a social club. It is not something that we have created on our own. But the church is Christ. And the people here amongst us are not people that we've chosen, that we've handpicked to be the people we would worship our God with. But there are brothers and sisters that God has called to this church to fellowship with us together. It has been God's plan in orchestrating every specific church body. Church community is a beautiful thing because it is not grounded in peripheral things such as education or class or even political alignment, but it is chiefly and most fundamentally rooted in our identity in Christ. We all come here because we recognize our need for salvation, our need for the forgiveness of sins in Christ. That's what we come together on. That's our chief identity. It's not all these other things, but it's Christ that unites us, that comes together. And we see that this is so transcendent that I think that the church is so unique in this way. Where can you have a community where you have 80-year-olds and 5-year-olds that are friends? That we come here and we see some of these children, our children are so excited to see some of our older members. That's a beautiful thing, to have these relationships that transcend all these other sociological things that our society often constructs is truly beautiful. And I know we can all think of people that we are the best of friends with here, our friends in Christ, that if it were not for our common salvation in Christ, we might have little to do with those people. That has certainly been true in my life, that I've become so close with people in different churches that if it were not for church, if it were not for our identity in the gospel, I never would have met these people, but I also never would have envisioned spending time, enjoying fellowship, enjoying meals with these people. The gospel is the, the strongest foundation for our unity, and that is why it transcends all these other things that oftentimes other clubs in the world create. But it is, not only, it is not only a blessing in that sense that it transcends all other things, that it gives us such a strong unity, but the church, as Philemon is, to so the members of the church, as Philemon was, they are encouragement to us. We live in a world of brokenness and suffering and hardship, and it is a joy to have the blessing of Christian fellowship, that as we walk through the hardships of life, we don't do so as those abandoned on an island, but we do so with a family behind our back, a church body that's rallying for us, that's praying for us, that's walking with us, that as we struggle with the sufferings, the indwelling sins in our lives, we have a body full of brothers and sisters in Christ here to encourage us, to remind us of our hope in Christ, to remind us that we have an everlasting inheritance in heaven, that our suffering will not go on forever, endlessly, but there will be a day where our Savior will return and make all things new. 
many of us perhaps are the only believing member in our families. And yet the church has become closer to us than some of our biological families. We may have some who struggle here, those who were never able to have kids. And yet in the body of Christ, there are so many children, so many spiritual children that we have. Christian fellowship is a beautiful thing as it is the haven and the comfort to so many saints in a suffering and weary world. Perhaps you are here today, you're either not a Christian or you're part of this body and you've been coming here and you have been in several churches before but you've never really felt like you've, you fit in that there's something that's just not quite right about fitting and you feel like you stand out. But beloved, just remember, we don't create this criteria of who fits in or not based on who your family is, who you know. We all are here, if you're a Christian, because you recognize your need for the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of our unity if you're here today and you recognize that, know that you belong here, that you belong to this church, that it is the gospel that creates the unity for our church. As we think about this privilege of Christian community, this beautiful picture of what it is, we don't want to just leave it there. We also want to remember the responsibility, the obligations that we have in this Christian fellowship as well. We are to love and encourage one another, to walk alongside one another in the hardships of life that we have. And my prayer, beloved, is that the Spirit would knit our hearts together in unity and love, particularly in this church body, that we would look in love to each other, that we would look for the good works that God has prepared for us in this church and in faith do those things. That as Paul says in Galatians, that we are to do good especially to the household of faith, that we would look to our neighbors, that we would remember those people who need prayer, we remember those people who are suffering, and try to walk alongside them to encourage them, to remind them of Christ's love for them, that we would do all these things for Christ's glory. I pray that we would also be a church that is so hospitable and welcoming to all people, that as we understand that we have been welcomed to our Father through the gospel, that we would be those who extend Christ's welcome to visitors, that we would be eager to welcome new visitors into their church, to catch them, to ask them about their story, but also to be hospitable to one another, to gather here, to encourage one another. This has been a difficult season for this church. You don't need me to tell you that, to inform you. And as we read through the New Testament, we see this idea of there are so many one another exhortations given to the church that Paul writes to. This is one of our privileges and responsibilities as Christians who exist in fellowship. That we're to build one another up. We're to speak words of truth. We're to love our neighbor. We can think about all the other one another exhortations as we read through the letters of Paul and in the New Testament. And friends, as we think about the privilege, the beauty of our Christian fellowship, let it not just stay there, but let us remember our responsibilities in Christian fellowship as well, to love and serve our neighbors, especially those in the household of faith. It is our privilege as well as our duty 
to do these things, to be united in the gospel of Christ Jesus and to come back worshiping here every Sunday with our church family, knowing that God is doing a work here by his spirit, that he's working in our hearts. If you are here and you are not walking with Christ, I would invite you to talk to the members of this church to talk with us about what it might be for you to join this church, to come and embrace the gospel in faith and in Christ Jesus, to know that you too can be a part of this beautiful family rooted in their identity in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for the brothers and sisters that you have given to us to walk in this life with we know that if it were left to ourselves, that we would be weary, that we would be broken, we would be so lonely, Lord, but you have not left us alone. You have not left us without means. You have given us your church that nourishes us, that feeds us, Lord. We thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you for the letter of Philemon. We thank you for how it shows us that our unity and how we ought to live and love our neighbor is rooted chiefly in the gospel of your son, Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would give us, you would renew our minds and our hearts to understand once again in faith what the gospel is, the forgiveness of sins, the mercy that you have lavished on us in Christ Jesus. And may a comprehension of that love and that great mercy and forgiveness that you have shown to us manifest itself into a life of fruit of your spirit that shows that we have been forgiven much, that we are those who are quick to forgive, knowing that we have been forgiven much in Christ. I pray that you would be with the people in this church in need of encouragement, those who are suffering. Lord, would you give us eyes to know those saints and help us to walk alongside them, to encourage them with the promises from your word. Lord, we thank you for this community that we have here but Lord, we do long for the day where we are united with all our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only on earth, but in heaven, Lord, that all tribes, tongues, and nations that we gather together around the throne of God and call upon and worship our great God. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would hasten that day, and we pray evermore, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray and ask all these things in the beautiful and matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.